Psalm 2. Page 844, if you're using the Pew Bible. Using Psalm 2 this morning as we consider Jesus Christ, the Messiah King that came into the world, that which we are celebrating, especially this time of year. This is a wonderful psalm that reminds us of the the authority, the kingship of God, the reign of God in Christ, and so wonderful passage for us to consider together this morning. Let us bow in prayer as before we read this scripture. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open minds, that you would soften hearts, that you would enliven souls. Through your word, through your truth, may your servant speak your words and your truth. May you forgive him, cleanse him of sin. Anything that displeases you, anything that stands in the way, Father, that your name would be honored and uh, that Christ would be exalted and glorified in this place. I pray all this in his name. Amen. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. This week saw the 100th anniversary of the birth of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. For those who may not know who he was, he was a prolific writer. He was a critic of communist, the communist Soviet Union. He stood so firmly against it because as he saw it, the communism of the Soviet Union demanded a man or a woman's highest allegiance. It left no room for God. I think rightly so. He saw this and became a critic of it. He was a faithful communist, later became a believer. He was thinking, uh, he spoke a lot about the horrors of the 20th century, that which was really the bloodiest century in the history of the world. By some estimates, the the, the bloodiest century, you could add up all the, the centuries previous that wouldn't equal what happened in the 20th century. He was asked often to to give his assessment of why 
this happen? How could the world have, have come to this with so much scientific uh, discovery and progress? Uh, how could we have gotten ourselves into the mess that was the terrible 20th century, he said this, if I were called upon to identify briefly the principal trait of the entire 20th century, here too I would be unable to find anything more precise than to repeat once again, men have forgotten God. Men have forgotten God. One thing that happens when men forget God is they become their own gods. This is a a particular problem for kings and for rulers Kings throughout history have often fashioned themselves to be God, to be divine. But it's also a massive problem throughout the entire world. And I think especially it's a problem for people who live in, in free societies, who can, who can build their own, their own world, their own moral universe. Easy to forget God, to reject the authority of the king of kings for whatever suits their fancy. Uh, The story of Christmas is incomplete without reminding ourselves of the kingship and the authority of Christ. Remind ourselves of the one who, who came in meekness, yet came as the king of the earth, the one for whom and through whom all things were made. Yes, he came humbly, he came uh, in meekness, and yet he is the God who reigns. Men are called to lay down their sovereignty, to live in the freedom that Jesus Christ gives. And that's part of the story of the Christmas season. But sadly, we see uh, in our world, again and again, in various contexts, various situations, people convince themselves of their own authority. They reject God. One story that I've been following especially closely because uh, my sister lives there is the story of advancing religious persecution in China. And uh, we've seen over the last couple of weeks, particularly Reformed Christians in China who have been made uh, the target. Over 100 members from this church that I prayed for previously, over 100 members and their pastor and most of their elders are in jail now. And what's been happening is, uh, if you want to hear something that sounds like it comes out of a George Orwell novel, there have been uh, community police that go from uh, house to house of the members of this church, trying to make them sign pledges uh, where they pledge to, quote, only worship at meeting places that conform to the laws of the People's Republic of China. They're asking people to commit. They're demanding people to commit to give their highest allegiance to their nation, to their country, rather than God. So one member recounts what happened as the community police came uh, to this house recounts the pledge that, I'm not sure if this was a man or a woman, wrote this pledge, but this is what uh, this Christian pledged back. I promise to only worship God at Christian meeting places that conform to the teachings of Scripture. And I will never go to a meeting place that does not conform to the teachings of Scripture. I've been so encouraged, so convicted, uh, so blown away by the faithfulness of these Christian folks in China who are standing against these earthly powers. Why? Because they have a king who is above all earthly powers. They're letting their lives be shaped by that reality. They humble themselves before the king of kings. Our life-transforming reality this morning is that Christ's humble giving of himself provides a, a pattern for us to gladly bear suffering for the sake of the lost and for the sake of the glory of God in Christ. 
Our ultimate allegiance must go to our king, the king of kings, Jesus Christ. But the the pattern which he sets up for us in his coming, it gives shape to the way that we have a heart for the lost. There is a reality of God's enemies here in Psalm 2. There is God's response, the response of the sovereign king, and there is the reason to take refuge. Reality of God's enemies, the response of the sovereign king, and the reason to take refuge in Christ. Uh, It's important to to notice that Psalms 1 and 2 are a bit of a compass for the entire Psalter, the the, the hymnal that God has given to his people. Psalms 1 and 2 provide us with a bit of an interpretive key for everything that happens in all of the book of Psalms. They don't have any superscriptions. We know that they are basically introductions to, to give us a sense of how are we to read the Psalms. Psalm 1 is very famous. Most of us could could recite most of it from memory. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord. It goes on to say, he will be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water. But the wicked are not so. They are they're like the chaff that the wind drives away. This would be a psalm that's Fairly easy to, to moralize. You, you read it and you say, okay, I kind of get the sense of what's going on here. If I do my best to obey God's law, if I do my best to pursue righteousness, then uh, my life on this earth will flourish. I will be like a tree that bears fruit in its season. And it, those who are the wicked, they will be like the chaff. They, they will flounder in this world. Of course, we know that that's not always the case. That's not always the story. In fact, we look to Jesus. Jesus was the one who perfectly kept all of the the commands of God's law, who was that Psalm 1 individual. His experience was probably more like the chaff here in Psalm 1. Isaiah 53, he had no form or majesty that we should look upon him. He was despised. He was rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That was the experience of Christ. But we learn that there here in Psalm 1 that it's not talking about earthly or worldly prosperity. To be seeking righteousness, to be seeking godliness, to be seeking communion with God, that is the greatest blessing. When the Psalms say, blessed is the man, or here is where you find blessing, what it's talking about is being joined in communion with the God of the universe. Psalm 1 gives us that interpretive key. Psalm 2 gives us another interpretive key for all of the psalms that we need to understand that we need to view things in light of eternity, in light of ultimate things, not the earthly fate, but the ultimate fate. God is the one who reigns overall. And oftentimes, in the circumstances of this life, there can be things that don't make sense, So we need to make sense of them in light of God's authority, who reigns and rules over all things, even the kings of the earth. So in Psalm 2, that is exactly what we see. It asserts for us that there are those who will plot against God, who will stand against God's authority, who will reject God's authority. It states it in in, 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 uh, in a question at the beginning of Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? Now, it's telling us something, that all standing against God is vain. It is foolishness. 
In the immediate context, we could say that this would have had to to do with Israel's dynasty, their their monarchical dynasty, the the Davidic kingship. Uh, There were other nations around Israel that would plot against them, that would sometimes break treaties or agreements. Think about how they could somehow take the land away from God's people. And to do so would be to stand against the anointed one of God, David sort of being the chief figure of that in the Old Testament, the one who was anointed by God to rule over God's people. But as we've been seeing uh, over the past couple of weeks, all of these roads and and these these Old Testament offices of prophet and priest and king find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the, the, the final anointed one of God. And this certainly was the experience of Jesus, that there were those who stood against him. There were those who conspired against him, who plotted against him. Even from the very beginning of his life, as we'll consider later on this evening, Herod, King Herod, who was not a a Gentile king, but a Jewish ruler, he plotted to try and take Jesus' life away from him. But his plotting was in vain. The religious leaders plotted and conspired against Jesus. We read in Luke chapter 22, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. And of course, they succeeded in sort of manipulating things to get Jesus crucified, but their plotting was in vain because it was according to God's plan that Christ would conquer through the cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says none of the rulers of this age understood this, that is the the mystery of God's working in the cross, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, that the ultimate victory of God would be through the cross. The psalm envisions the the rulers of the earth huddling together, sort of taking a huddle, right? Take a huddle and think about the strategy. That seems a little bit off, doesn't it? Because it seems like the kings of the earth are sort of arrayed against one another. Uh, They're trying to increase their own property, their own dynasty, their own kingdoms. Kings seem to oppose each other. But Psalm 2 is not being naive here. It knows that that's the reality. What What it's saying to us is that no matter what happens in terms of specific circumstances on the earth... That all of those who do not recognize the authority of Almighty God are involved in conspiring against Him. There are all kinds of subplots and sub-stories going on in the world. This country against that country. This king against that king. Ultimately, all of them who reject the authority of the King of Kings and assert their own authority are involved in this ultimate movement Against God. This is the other side of the coin that uh, we, in terms of what we learned a few weeks ago, having to do with the, the, the goodness, the blessing that is human government of the state to suppress evil, uh, to punish evildoers. It is a gift from God, but that does not mean that there will never be anyone who abuses that power. And of course, we've seen time and time and time again through the ages. And particularly in the last hundred years, those who abuse that good gift of God in order to be tyrannically ruling over others. Sex, of course, is a gift of God. Don't need any convincing to show that that is a gift that is often horribly, horribly abused. So just because it is a gift from God doesn't mean it cannot be abused. And we see this um, in terms of human government time and time and time again. 
Within this God-ordained means of order, the sinful human heart sees an opportunity to pounce upon power and to grasp it. If you reject God, to use the language of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, you reject God, you forget God, the question becomes, where will your ultimate allegiance be? To whom will you give ultimate allegiance? We're created uh, to know God, we're created to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. When that's taken away, what fills that gap? What fills that hole? Something will. Uh, Something will. Worship is unavoidable for the human being. As I mentioned at the beginning, this story in in China, you've seen the the, the president of China uh, increase his persecution of the Christian church. Why? Because he knows that Christianity is a threat to China's national sovereignty. Their communist national sovereignty demands that their highest allegiance be given to China, to their nation, to their state. And they need people to have China as their highest loyalty. But when one turns to Christ, when one confesses that Christ is Lord, their ultimate loyalty is already determined. And that's really one of the beauties of this great land, which we've been blessed to enjoy, is that this country would never have been built uh, if not for Christian minds behind it, thinking about the goodness of country, the goodness of serving your country, the goodness of even giving your life for country, but for reserving the space to give your ultimate allegiance, your highest allegiance to God. And that is what we are called to do. God is king. God in Christ reigns. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. If ever the two are in conflict, you go with God. There's the reality that we see of people arrayed against the king of kings, people arrayed against God's reign and his rule in Christ. We see it in rulers of the earth. We see it in the common folk of the earth. How often we hear, I'm the master of my fate, I'm the captain of my soul, I'm building this moral world, this moral universe for myself. I'm deciding for me what is best, what is right. We see time and time again people showing the rebellion against the almighty God. So with all of this happening down below, what is the response of God? Is he, is he nervous? Does he need to worry that his authority is in jeopardy? Well, no, of course not. The one enthroned in the heavens laughs. Verse 4, the Lord scoffs at them and he rebukes them in his anger. He terrifies them in his wrath. Question for us is, as the people of God confronting us from this psalm, is are we living in light of that reality? That all the kings of the earth could conspire together. They could, uh, they could combine their powers. And the God of heaven, the one who reigns and who rules in Jesus Christ, that he would still laugh. He would scoff. Because nothing can compare to the power that he has. I've been poring over letters of these believers in, in China. There's this letter written by uh, the wife of an elder. Her husband was taken away to prison just this past week. And listen to her words as she gives us an example of what it means to live in light of the conviction, the truth that God reigns. She says, my heart is joyful and at peace. My tears flow, but it's not grief. I finally ask myself, 
Aren't you willing to experience this tiny little bit of pain for the Lord? My conclusion was, I'm willing, I'm very willing, because I know that this slight momentary affliction is not worth comparing to that eternal glory that is to come. Sometimes I want to despair for a moment and grieve a little bit, but I really don't feel like it. I think the Lord has replaced that despair with his fullness. She's weighing the trials of life. She's thinking about this situation that's come upon them, that's come upon their church, early reign, covenant church. She's weighing the trials of life against the glories of heaven that are given to us by grace through faith in Christ. The power of God is supreme. It's above all others. We say we believe it. We say we confess it. The question for us is, are we prepared to live in light of it? Are we prepared to live day by day in light of the reign of God in Christ? Do we have the spiritual depth that is able to look into the face of such evil and still rest in God's sovereign will, in his gracious decree? The one enthroned in the heavens laughs, he scoffs. Do we take comfort in the nature of God's power? Or do we trust in other things? Do we find comfort in other things? Are we so obsessed with financial security and earthly comfort? Are we enslaved to the fear of man, uh, what others think about us or what others say about us, that we don't have sufficient comfort in the, in the power, the authority that God has, that it is above all earthly powers? Many of you are going through times of uncertainty because of physical affliction, or suffering, because of Uh, Perhaps it is your body that is failing. Perhaps it is someone you know, someone that you love, someone that you cherish. Do you take comfort in the reign of God? Do you take comfort that he reigns and he rules? He is above all others. This slight momentary affliction is not worth comparing to the glory that is to come. Psalm 2 was huge. It was monumental for the early church. And Peter and John are taken before the, the leadership of Jerusalem, and uh, they're being threatened. Uh, they said, stop proclaiming Christ, stop doing all of these miracles, stop. Peter and John say, we're going to testify to the truth. And he said, basically, you can do what you want, we know what we have been called to do. Proclaim the truth, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The leadership in Jerusalem can't find anything to punish them with. So we read in Acts chapter 4, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against Jesus, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It is through this story of Christ, what Christ suffered, what he went through, what he experienced ultimately in the resurrection that, they, that gave comfort to the Christians in the midst of all of their affliction, in the midst of all that they went through. It really is focused on uh, the resurrection of Christ. That's really where Psalm 2 is, is bringing us. I have set 
my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is fulfilled ultimately as Christ ascends to heaven, takes his place as as the risen and messianic king. Christ has always reigned. It's not like at the resurrection, for the first time, he becomes the son of God. In Psalm 2, that's not what Psalm 2 is saying. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or uh, in our translation, you are my son, today I have become your father. It's not like at the resurrection, Jesus becomes for the first time the son of God. But there is a special aspect of the rule of Christ that's manifested, that's made known, that's brought to bear on our world in the resurrection. Verse 7 is talking about the resurrection ultimately as well. You are my son, today I have begotten you. In Acts chapter 13, Paul is preaching the gospel and he uses that exact verse to point to the resurrection. He says this, we bring you the good news that what God promised to to the fathers, he has fulfilled to us by raising Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It's bringing us to Christ and the reign of Christ and the rule of Christ, that God reigns in his son and that reign and that rule are manifested to all of the world when Christ was raised from the dead and all the people everywhere are called to lay down their own sovereignty, to recognize the sovereignty of God in Christ. That's the response. Then finally, the reason to take refuge in Christ. That's really the, the, the argument that the psalm is, is getting to towards the end. It has shown us that all authority belongs to the Son of God. All authority is given to Him. The Father has promised to give Him the nations as your inheritance. It's important to understand. Some people have tried to use Psalm 2 as some sort of promise to, uh, to a, a regular believer that God will give you all of the world if you ask Him. And that's not what Psalm 2 is saying. It's that the Father promising to give to the Son all of the nations as his inheritance. All authority belongs to him. And you see the the clear language in this Psalm that the Son will not hesitate to exercise that authority. He will not hesitate to judge the world. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash his enemies to pieces like pottery. We need to know, we need to understand, we need to proclaim that on the last day, when the Son comes again to judge the living and the dead, it will become supremely manifest that to reject his rule, to reject his reign, will be the pinnacle, will have been the pinnacle of foolishness. Be warned, it says, you rulers of the earth. This is what the church is to proclaim. That that which we can suppress, that which the world can suppress and ignore and push away. And no, God doesn't reign. God isn't ruling. That's not happening. I can't see it, so I don't believe it. The church proclaims, no, God is reigning and he is ruling in Christ. Someday, all will pay homage to the king of kings. Psalm 2 addresses kings directly, but of course, regular people as well need to know and they need to understand this. God will come with wrath and fury and with judgment. But the case that the psalm makes is also one of hope. Because it it, it gives this warning so that people would serve the Lord with fear and with trembling, that they would come before him with reverence, 
looking to him with a humble and a lowly heart, renouncing their own sovereignty, laying their own sovereignty down in the face of God's rule. Kiss the son, Psalm 2 says. Just basically recognize the authority, the reign, and the rule of the son of God. Lay down your sovereignty. Come and recognize his. This is what the church is to proclaim. This reformed pastor in China, uh, this pastor of early reign covenant church, one of the reasons he's been caught in the crosshairs is because in the past few months he has been relentlessly preaching and proclaiming that their government needs to repent, that their pastor needs to repent because, or their president needs to repent because he is persecuting the bride of Christ. But he's been giving a message of hope. He's saying he needs to repent, but he can, there is a way of escape. And it is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the message of the gospel. God reigns. God reigns in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is coming to exercise his authority. That is an absolute fact. We need to recognize that fact. We need to know it and remember it and proclaim it and live in light of it. But we also proclaim that forgiveness can be had through this one who, though the king of kings, came humbly. He came in meekness. He was born in a manger. He was destined for Zion. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What did, the, what did the human race do to him instead? Did we put him on Zion? No, we put him on a hill called Calvary. We hung him on a cross. We killed the Son of God. Augustine speaks of this mystery of Advent and Christmas. He says, Man's maker was made man, that the bread of life might hunger, that the fountain might thirst, that the light would sleep, that the way would be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of falsehood, that the teacher might be beaten with whips, that the foundation might be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. The pattern of, of humbling himself, to reconcile sinners, to be the ultimate sacrifice, as we talked about last week, the priest, our great high priest, who offered that final sacrifice for sin. That provides God's people with the calling and also the power to follow in the footsteps of Christ as those who were once enemies of God, now made friends of God, now made children of God, to even pray for the lost. One of the astounding things about this, this uh, situation that I've been following in China is that the Christians there are happy for the opportunity to proclaim the gospel of grace to those who are persecuting them. Saying, how else are we going to be able to proclaim this good news to them? We are happy for what the Lord has been doing. The, the pastor of this Reformed church has said, this is a masterpiece that God is weaving together that we might proclaim the good news to them. They're rejoicing over this suffering because in it they can proclaim the grace of the gospel. They can share in the sufferings of Christ. This is one thing that the pastor wrote. He had a, a letter that was set to be published once he went to prison. And he says this, All acts of the church are attempts to prove to the world the real existence of another world. I'll read that again. All acts of the church are attempts to prove to the world the real existence of another world. That is really the calling upon our life as the people of God, strangers and aliens, pilgrims in this world. We are called to live 
in a way that proves to the world the real existence of another world. That we take comfort in what Christ is doing. We take comfort in the life that we have been given in the reigning and the ruling and exalted Christ. And we live in light of that. All of the circumstances which come upon us, all of the circumstances which we face, we say we live in light of Psalm 2. The King of Kings reigns and he rules. He gives us an inheritance in another world. The pastor goes on to say, For this reason, spiritual disobedience, bodily suffering, are both ways we testify to another eternal world and to another glorious king. Our situation is not exactly like these Chinese Christians, is it? All kinds of points of application where we say, Am I living? Am I living? Proving to the world the real existence of another world. Am I living in light of his authority, God's authority in Christ? Am I living in light of that next life, that life he has given to me in Jesus? 1 Peter chapter 4 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Certainly the trials tribulations that we would face here are different than our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world where they are routinely persecuted in such ways. But that same battle is going on everywhere. We are engaging in that spiritual battle as well. We're on a different part of the battlefield, different aspects that we need to keep in mind that we need to remember, but certainly we need to engage and to, to ask ourselves whether or not we're living in light of the risen and exalted Christ. I want to finish by reading a few lines uh, from this letter once again that this pastor wrote. He says, Separate me from my wife and children, ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all of these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one can make me change my life. No one can raise me from the dead. Jesus is the Christ, Son of the eternal living God. He died for sinners and rose to life for us. He is my King and the King of the whole earth yesterday, today, and forever. I am His servant and I am imprisoned because of this. I will resist in meekness those who resist God and I will joyfully violate all laws that violate God's laws. Are we living in light of God's rule in Christ? Are we living in light not only of the birth? Are we living in light of the death, the resurrection, the ascension, that he is sitting at the Father's right hand now above all earthly powers? That comfort is to be a comfort to all Christians, no matter what you're going through, big or small, whether it's facing your own mortality or whether it's those who are facing persecution in China or anywhere else in this world. We are called to take comfort in this. And to remember the messianic king who reigns and rules now and forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. And we thank you for the gospel of grace that you declare unto us. And that you would have us declare to the world. Father, you will send your son once again. And he will come to judge the world. May we be mindful of that and may it fill us with compassion for the lost. Uh, that we would have a heart 
that they would turn to Christ, trust in him, be forgiven, be given eternal life, go from enemies of God to friends of God and family of God. We pray for our brothers and sisters throughout the world that you would comfort them today, keep their faith strong, keep our faith strong, which can so easily uh, be entangled in other things. Father, keep us faithful, always looking to Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Respond uh, together in song. Take your red hymnal.